this is Jackie Rom, and welcome to my weekly podcast, The Life of a Crime Novelist. Good morning, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about this week's show. So, I am currently uh, working on a new project called Jackie Rom Investigates. The first season has six episodes where I chat to ordinary people with extraordinary lives and it is a web series on youtube just go to youtube uh, slash c slash jackie rom and uh, amazing people i get to talk to so this podcast is actually a recording from jackie rom investigate but we've changed it to audio so uh, here we go for this week's life of a crime novelist Hi, welcome to Jackie Rom Investigates. And yes, I am Jackie Rom. And I've had the best time over the last few weeks chatting to all different people around the world. Ordinary people with extraordinary lives. And just finding out all about them and maybe they'd end up as a character in a book. I've also learned some new skills. Uh, makeup, well they're not new, but makeup, hair, costume, lighting, directing, editing... It's been amazing. Let's go over and see who the guest is today. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good, Jackie. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. What time is it for you at the moment? It is uh, 10 o'clock in the morning in West Hollywood, California. And it's 6 o'clock in the evening in the UK. <laughs> so how did the day go? I guess it went okay. You're, it you're was good. Okay. We've got some nice weather. Not as good as your weather, though. Yeah, it's gorgeous today. Yeah. Yeah. So if you wouldn't mind, could you tell my viewers a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, so um, my name is John Duran. I'm a native Angelino. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh, I am an attorney. That's my day job. And a city councilman and past mayor of the city of West Hollywood uh, for the past 20 years. Uh, I got my start as an attorney when I thought I was going to become a corporate lawyer. And then the AIDS epidemic hit Southern California, and I suddenly found myself becoming a lawyer for a lot of lawbreakers. Uh, I was the attorney for ACT UP Los Angeles, which was the direct action group that was protesting government indifference and representing them at demonstrations and protests. And then I became the lawyer for the Needles Now, which was a needle exchange where volunteers were passing out clean needles to drug addicts to help prevent the spread of HIV. Of course, it's illegal to possess, at that time, a syringe without a medical prescription. And then I became the attorney for medical marijuana when we realized that marijuana helped alleviate pain, helped people keep their medication down, helped deal with the nausea. But again, marijuana uh, was illegal in California, and possessing it in large quantities, as these buyers clubs were doing, was also illegal. So I started to become this HIV and AIDS lawyer. And then that led in the 90s to becoming an LGBT rights lawyer. And then that led to me getting elected to public office in 2001. And I've been on the West Hollywood City Council now for almost 20 years. That, what a journey. Fantastic. Yeah. So grew up in, in Hollywood, West Hollywood, and the family, siblings and mum and I, dad at home or... Sure. I come from a lower middle class Latino family. I was actually born in East L.A., over on the east side where most of the Mexican-American community lives. Where did your parents come from? 
My parents uh, actually moved to Los Angeles in the 1950s. Prior to that, they lived in a place called Silver City, New Mexico, uh, which is in the southwestern part of the United States. And my family's roots go back hundreds of years in southwestern United States. And when people say, oh, when did your family cross the border? I <laughs> said, no, 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 your border crossed my family in 1849. We were always sitting there in the middle of the New Mexico desert and one day we all became U.S. citizens. And so did you know from very young what you wanted to do? No, I didn't have a clue. I, I was a, a very creative kid. Uh, I, I, I read a lot of books. I didn't feel comfortable being around other kids. I wasn't really great at sports. Uh, I wasn't comfortable with large groups. And so I ended up isolating and just reading. And I had my entire world was contained in these books that I would buy 10 or 15 a month from a local book club. And I would read and read and read. And I created all these fantasy worlds. And I, I think that's something that a lot of people who feel different end up isolating and creating their own universes and worlds. And, that, and that's what I did. Uh, I was in Catholic school for 12 years. I have two little brothers and a little sister. And uh, while they all seem to be doing just fine at getting along with others, I, I was mostly content with being by myself. And at what point did you then decide, I, I want to go into law? I, was, uh, I graduated uh, uh, from uh, Cal State Long Beach with a degree in business. Uh, and I had a business degree. And then I thought, OK, maybe I need to get an MBA now and go for higher education. And I thought, well, everyone's going to get an MBA. I'll get a JD instead. And I thought well, I was. Well, tell me what that is, because I've not heard of that. Oh, sure. Um, MBA is a master's in business administration yeah. and a JD is a Juris Doctorate. It's a law degree. Right. And I decided I would become a business lawyer uh, and, and that would be my higher education and getting a doctorate. And as I was graduating from law school, about the same time that that happened, uh, HIV hit Southern California. And I suddenly discovered so many of my friends uh, getting very sick uh, and starting to die terrible deaths with horrific diseases. And uh, I was a brand new, you know, graduated law student taking the California bar and trying to find lawyers who would do the work that was needed. Back then, people were being fired because they were HIV positive, kicked out of their apartments, you know, denied medical care, restaurants wouldn't serve them. Doctors wouldn't treat them. Morticians wouldn't bury their bodies. There were all these terrible legal issues that were going on. And I kept thinking, well, there's got to be some lawyers doing this work. And I discovered, no, uh, the large law firms refused to handle cases for people with AIDS. And uh, the smaller law firms didn't see any market in, you know, doing those sort of services for people who were sick and dying. So I found three other uh, young lawyers like myself. We all passed the bar that year. Uh, a lawyer from San Francisco named Joe Loclum, a lawyer from Canada named Bruce Robertson, and a lawyer from New York named Tom Kendricks. And the four of us, we were all in our 20s, and we formed a small law firm to do the work of HIV and AIDS in Southern California. Uh, sadly, both Bruce and Tom passed away in the epidemic, uh, but Joel and I are still here. Wow. It, you know, it sounds like a film. Uh, just it just the story sounds like it would transfer to the big screen yeah i've i've actually been writing something funny you should say that uh because what happened then over the next 30 years it sometimes seems surreal you know one day i'm 
having dinner in the White House with the President of the United States. And then the next day, I'm getting arrested in front of the White House uh, with another President of the United States. And so all of this trauma around this social revolution that was happening around HIV and AIDS and LGBT rights, I just found myself in the right place at the right time. And I, I do, I thank God above that I did not become a corporate lawyer. I think I would have been vastly unhappy uh, worrying about bottom lines and profit margins. Instead, I got to do work that was meaningful, meaningful. Yeah. meaningful and made a difference. So and I started writing it down. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, you need to write a book. Write the book of your life. Yeah, you know, I, I, I met a young millennial about a year and a half ago, and I was telling him some of the stories, what I, what I call the bad old days, the good old bad old days, because a lot of it's really trauma-filled. And uh, he said, you need, you need to write all of this down. I said, I, I have to be honest, I, it's a very painful place for me to go sometimes, because some of those memories are still very fresh, and I miss... You know, I lost 104 friends between 1985 and 1995. And he said, you know what? I am a gifted musician. You are a good speaker and writer. Let's write a musical play about this. And I have discovered by writing it that way, it feels like I'm talking about somebody else's life and, and I'm able to get it on paper. That's fantastic because um, people need to know that there are good people around. And... Um, and, and I think that's important, especially in today's world where we've kind of forgotten the previous battles yes. with today's battles. You forget the last battle. Yeah, no, so true. I, I, I actually put together a Zoom call earlier this week with seven of us that were in the trenches during the last epidemic in the 80s. Uh, Dr. Michael Gottlieb, who's one of the co-discoverers of the HIV virus, he was the first physician to put all the pieces of the puzzle together in 1981 and figured out that there was a new virus among us. He's become a very dear friend. A lawyer named Diane Abbott, and she became the first chair of AIDS Project Los Angeles. A rabbi named Denise Eger, who was a clergy member who was, you know, dealing with all the death and dying within not only her congregation, her synagogue, but also all around the community. David Kessler, who was a nurse and created progressive nursing because back then nurses wouldn't treat HIV patients. So he had to go out and find nurses that were willing to get into the middle of the epidemic. Uh, a journalist named Karen Oakham uh, and, uh, and an uh, African-American activist named Phil Wilson who created the Black AIDS Institute here in Los Angeles. And the seven of us have all known each other almost 40 years and, and we decided to get together and talk about our experiences and what happened in the 80s and 90s and why it's valuable information for people today. Good 90-minute call. It was awesome. Yeah, I bet. AIDS epidemic has been mentioned numerous times over the last couple of months. Right. Yeah. And they're comparing numbers. That's what they're doing a lot, is comparing numbers of deaths then to now. You know, that's good to do the quantitative analysis. I, I wish more of the media would do the qualitative, because one of the things that we had to learn to do was how to live with a virus in our midst. HIV hasn't disappeared. It's been here 40 years. And as we were doing the body counts and losing people, at the same time, we had to create new institutions and new facilities and create new research and new advancements in medication and treatment. And we did all that, and not that we knew how, we didn't know how. We just dove in 
And so a, a lot of times I, I look back and what I'm seeing now in the last three months reminds me of the early years of the AIDS epidemic until people finally got angry enough to take matters into their own hands. And that's where I feel we are, at least right now, in my country. We have a government that's not only neglectful, oh. but, uh, but willfully ignorant and reckless with the lives of people. We're now at 100,000 deaths, more than anywhere else in the world, and it's all out of indifference and neglect. And this is the exact same scenario we saw in the early days of the AIDS epidemic. Really? It's a repeat? It is a repeat. You know, isn't it sad because you think people should learn from times and not repeat? Yeah, and you know, I think part of it too is, uh, at least here in, in the United States, you know, we lost a half a million people to AIDS in the 80s and 90s, uh, many of them gay men. But a lot of the people who survived that period of time, I think, are walking around with some PTSD. It, it was not normal for young 20-year-olds to lose their entire circle of friends. You know, that's something that people experience in times of war. You know, I think about the bombing of London and what people in London must have felt like during World War II and how they survived that and, uh, and, and came through it. And that's what I feel the survivors of the last epidemic are. They're, they're kind of the walking wounded, walking around. I was with gonna say, how, how have you survived? I, uh, work, is work your survival? I was very fortunate. I, um, uh, I'm pretty open about this, but I, I bottomed out uh, as an alcoholic and a drug addict in uh, the mid 90s. Uh, you know, I was self-medicating with alcohol and drugs for a long period of time. Uh, that's, I think, the way a 20-year-old thinks about how to manage problems. Let me just get stoned or high, right? Yep, yep. And uh, it ended up, you know, in a very bad spot. And I, I had to walk into a 12-step meeting in the middle of the 90s, and, and I've been there ever since. And, and even though I had a lot of religious training in my 12 years of Catholic school, I hadn't thought much about spirituality or about those notions, those virtues around spirituality, and I found that in my 12-step meetings. And, and that's helped ground me a great deal through the work I did around HIV, AIDS, LGBT rights, and, and even today as a, an elected official here in Los Angeles. So what? Um, you, you work still in law, and I, you work... Yeah, I'm, I'm a criminal defense lawyer now. <laughs> How exciting. Now I'm talking your language, I know. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, are courts closed at the moment? Yes, yes. All the courts are closed, and they're really not operating other than emergency situations, and uh, we're going to have an incredible backlog of cases whenever the courts reopen. Uh, but for now, because of social distancing, uh, most government buildings are still closed. And uh, the other job you have in the city, what was what's that job that you do? I'm a, I'm a city councillor, and uh, there are five of us on the city council, and we have a rotating mayor system. So each of us takes his or her turn being mayor once a year. Uh, I've been on the council coming up on 20 years, and I've served as the mayor of West Hollywood four separate times. Uh, if I get reelected later this year, then I'll be mayor for a fifth time. And then after the next term, that that's it. Okay. 20, so um, years is long enough. In England, a mayor is a celebrity, is a celebrity. There's no powers. He just cuts ribbon and um, and raises money. A mayor does nothing else. So <laughs> tell me what the duties of a mayor in uh, America, because they're very different from here. They're not elected. 
Well, they are elected by councillors, but they just literally open shops and things like that. Yeah, it depends on the city. Like like the larger cities that have a city, what's called a city charter, like the city of Los Angeles, the city of New York, the city of Chicago, the people elect the mayor directly. And the mayor has actually some extraordinary powers to veto budget, to make appointments, to make executive orders without the legislative body or the city council uh, necessarily being involved. In the smaller cities, my city is considered a smaller city. We're a general law city. So people elect the five councilors, and then we just pass the gavel around. And in my city, our mayor does the same thing that sounds like Boris Johnson does, which is cut the ribbons and, uh, you know, show up and issue proclamations and run the meetings. Uh, it's more administrative than anything. And do you have a, a pride? Do you have a L.A. pride day out there or anything like that? We do, actually. Uh, all right. So the history of Pride. This is the 50, 50 year anniversary of Pride, yes. city of West Hollywood. Right. In, in 1969, uh, the Stonewall riots happened in New York City. Uh, strangely, we had riots here in Los Angeles in 67, two years before that at the Black Cat Tavern. But that didn't make the national news like the, the New York riots. But, you know, I always attribute the Black Cat Tavern as being the beginning of the movement rather than Stonewall in 69. But uh, a year later in 1970, uh, the Reverend Troy Perry, Morris Tide, and others decided to have a parade in order to commemorate what happened in New York on Christopher Street. And so they created something called Christopher Street West, uh, which happened only one year on Hollywood B Boulevard in 1970. The LAPD uh, harassed the people in the parade. You know, the city government attempted to uh, not let the parade go forth. They had to be taken to court. It was a complete hassle. So the year after that, 71, it came to West Hollywood, my city, and it's been here ever since. So every year we have a, a parade and a festival. And, and normally we get 300,000 people to show up for that. So it's an extraordinary event in our city. Uh, not happening this year. When uh -huh. does it normally happen? It usually happens the second or third weekend of June. So it, it's coming up in, in a few weeks and it's all going to be online. And we said we're doing a lot of, you know, talking heads and art pieces and uh, other, uh, you know, cultural events online for people to participate. But we hope to be back on the streets next year. I, I guess it all depends on the COVID virus. Oh, please, God, I hope so. So have you got any... Um goals and things that you you haven't done that you want to do i think uh you know i uh yes so um you know money is not a real big motivator for me and uh neither is power uh and neither is politics and it's funny to say because i've been doing politics <laughs> for 40 years of my life but that little kid that i told you about at the beginning of the interview used to read books uh, I used to write plays and I'd get the neighborhood kids to audition and I'm like 10 years old and we create pieces of art and I charge a nickel for people to come watch our show and sell them lemonade and, and I liked doing that. But I stopped doing that because I thought it was an identifier that uh, called me out for being gay. And then I was subjected to bullying and harassment and so all the creative sides of me, I shut them down to protect myself from violence. And I think a lot of LGBT people do that. We create the closets that we shelter in. 
uh, and we try to do away with any of the things that make us unique. So part of coming out for me and I think for countless others has been about reclaiming that which came so naturally to us as children. And what came naturally to me was being creative and writing fantastic stories. And so I'm working on a couple of projects right now, you know, one about the history of the LGBT movement in Los Angeles and the AIDS epidemic and why it's relative to COVID. And the other is I'm working with a, a fellow on uh, the, the House of Usher, Edgar Allan Poe's The House of Usher, Fall of the House of Usher, redoing it in musical format uh, for a Halloween uh, tale for high school kids in Los Angeles to you know, enjoy the work of Edgar Allan Poe because young people, they don't get the classics anymore. They get everything on you know, the internet or by tweet or Instagram or selfie. And they're missing out on Edgar Allan Poe and Lewis Carroll and, and all the great classics. And it's a shame. So yeah. I want to, I'm going to spend my time bringing that back to life. Brilliant. I'm a drama teacher. That's my other job. Oh, so, uh, so I do uh, a lot of Shakespeare uh, with the children and any classics. I agree. Classics are, are very, very important. Um, how old were you when you came out publicly? 18. And was that a hard decision to do, or were you ready? And how did your parents take it? It, it was uh, it was very hard. Here in the state of California, it was uh, criminal to be gay or lesbian up until the year 1975. So uh, I turned 18 in 1978. It was just a few years after that. Uh, I knew I was having these homosexual feelings, and I thought, oh my God, I've, I've got to get away from the city. It's the Lo it's Los Angeles is corrupting me. That's what it is. I need to go somewhere decent and healthy and wholesome where I can save my immortal soul. I'm going to go work at Disneyland because all the kids there <laughs> seem to be so clean cut and all, all wholesome. And, and I went and I got a job there working at Disneyland. I did not realize I had just thrown myself into the hotbed of homosexuality because yes. all the people who work there were also gay and lesbian. And so I ended up finding my tribe of people and I did save my soul at Disneyland, just not the way I intended. Brilliant. And how were, we, how were your parents? Were they supportive? Yes, uh, my mother has passed now. She uh, passed a few years ago, uh, but obviously being uh, very you know, Catholic, and very Latino, uh, you know, they had learned a lot of things about homosexuality from the church. And so when I first told my mother, you know, it was awkward. And she said, don't tell your dad, because my dad is a retired United States Marine and very conservative, a Korean War veteran. And she said she would tell him and she, she kind of fumbled it. She didn't do it very well. But they started to meet my friends and a lot of their ideas about gay men and lesbians were suddenly called into question because it wasn't like they suspected at all. And she ended up becoming a, a founding member of PFLAG, Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays in East Los Angeles. And whenever Latina mothers uh, you know, had their kids come out, they would all say, oh, go talk to Gloria Duran. Her son's been out since the 70s. So he's been out forever. And so they go talk to her. And they'd say, Gloria, weren't, weren't you upset when John told you he was gay? And she said, for a little while, yes. But I was more upset when his brother, Tony, told me he was a Republican. That <laughs> <laughs> she That's was so Yeah, she was an elected official also. She uh, was in public office on the school board here in Los Angeles for 16 years. 
So in many ways, she was uh, somebody I looked up to and a mentor and, and who, in whose path I followed. So. Uh, when we first opened this, I noticed a painting behind you and asked you straight away, tell everybody again, because it's fabulous. This, uh, this is a great painting. Uh, my friend Robert Ivers painted it for me. He was a very talented artist here in Los Angeles. And uh, sadly, he, uh, he we lost him in the AIDS epidemic in, in the late 80s. And while you know he was sick and getting sicker, uh, he wanted to give me something to remember him by. So... I've had this painting on my wall now for 30 years, and it's nice that you asked me so I can remember Robert now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been fascinating chatting. I've really enjoyed hearing your story, okay. and I'm, I'm really interested to see when you get books, play, whatever you decide to do, I think it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. The name of the work is called Wildfire because wildfire is something Southern Californians are accustomed in terms of a natural disaster. It happens every year. It spreads rapidly. It's indiscriminate. It strikes down rich or poor. Sometimes it hits one house, skips over three, hits another house, and it seems to have a mind of its own. And, and that's what the AIDS epidemic felt like in Southern California in those days, like a wildfire blazing across the land. Uh, but what Act Two of the production is about is that the people who respond to it, we become the new wildfire. We burn down the institutions and the religious beliefs and the governments who do not respond to pandemic well and create new systems. And so wildfire becomes a metaphor for the human response in the midst of a pandemic. And so uh, I, I finished writing it. I've run it by a couple of critics. They've given me some great suggestions. I'm doing my first rewrite. Hope to have it launched next year. Oh, I'm, I, think, I think it's going to do really well. I think that um, it's uh, good to keep memories alive. I think it's good to move forward like uh, I think we are doing. I hope we're doing. We're all uh, far more tolerant. Right. I think that's right. And I think there were lessons that the women and men who responded to AIDS learned that would be really helpful to the world pandemic now. You know, when AIDS happened to a lot of people, it was not just something that happened to other people. It didn't seem to affect me personally. But to those of us in the middle of it that were losing dozens of people every month, our whole world was falling apart. And that's what I think the world is experiencing now, the world falling apart. It feels like everything, all future plans, all economies, all dreams are falling apart. We felt that too. And yet we came through and we even came through stronger. And so I think there's wisdom to be taken from the women and men who walk through that all over the world. And hopefully it'll be useful to all of us as we move forward through COVID-19. I'm not gonna add anything. It was lovely. That was a lovely ending to our interview. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. -bye. Bye.